Welcome to another episode of Grief Talk. Everything you want to know about grief and more. I'm your host, Vaughn Solis. As an author, life transformation coach, online instructor, and bereaved mom since 2005, I'll be bringing you great content that is informative, inspiring, and practical. Whether you have suffered a loss or other adversity, stay tuned and tapped in as I cover a variety of topics to help you get where you want to go on your journey to heal and grow. Today's guest is Maria Belenik, a bereaved mom since 2009, certified grief educator and speaker. Maria will be sharing with us her journey to navigate the emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical scars of her grief and the ways she found to embrace grief as a form of love. Maria is passionate about helping other mothers on their own grief roller coaster reclaim their inner peace and love for themselves. So welcome to the show, Maria. I have been uh, really looking forward to uh, our uh, time together. So I want to welcome you finally to uh, the Grief Talk podcast. Well, thank you so much, Mon. I was looking forward to it. And of course, I know you and I had a conversation and just with um, the journey that we both had, which is different, but yet similar in some ways. Um, I think this is a great opportunity to speak with you and share with your audience. And I thank you so much for that opportunity. You are so welcome. So I'm going to start audience uh, from the introduction. I uh, did introduce uh, Maria as a bereaved mom like myself since 2009. I'm 2005. She's 2009. And uh, I went to your website, Maria, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful website. We're going to be talking about your resources uh, throughout this episode. Uh, But one of the things um, that I got that you said, and I wanted to read it here, so I got it absolutely correct, is that When a mother loses a child, we feel a pain that is so profound, it is almost impossible to put it into words. Um, You also said that society is afraid of having a conversation about grief and loss. So you and I are absolutely kindred uh, souls uh, in not only our experience that way, but also in the work that we are doing to uh, try and change this. The other thing I want my audience to hear I got this from, uh, I believe it was your most uh, recent blog post. And again, I've got to read from my note here. But that grief is not linear. It does not occur in set stages and cycles. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. It is messy, chaotic, and unpredictable. We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, because this is part of the reason I feel that people don't want to, I don't want to hear about it. And uh, the other thing I just wanted to point out that I totally agree with, and uh, we may touch on this a little bit uh, too throughout the work that you do in self-care, self-love, at the root of it all um, is you say, our love evolves when our child dies, forever in our hearts, unconditional and selfless. And it's so aptly and beautifully put because it's so true and it is a journey that um, takes us uh, through uh, levels. That's the best word I could come up with. Like I felt that I discovered a completely different level of love, unconditional love uh, after my daughter died. And it wasn't just for her. It was actually for mankind, if you will, humankind. 
So we may get to talk about that a little bit. Uh, I can't imagine that you don't work in compassion and empathy as part of your work because you are a very compassionate and empathetic person. So I'd like to turn uh, turn things over to you by asking you if you'd just like to, for uh, our audience, explain a little bit about your experience and how you came to uh, do what you're doing as a grief educator, speaker, and um, the coaching you offer, the work, the resources that you offer. Well, thank you, Vaughn. And you're right. It's not something that uh, you wake up in the morning going, I think I'm going to be a grief worker. Or in that aspect of grief, it's through the the journey um, that has been harrowing at times. And so my, my son had cancer for 11 years. So we did the, the long journey of that. Um, and then I think when he, well, when he passed away, all of a sudden it just seemed my life stopped. Uh, it was like one of those things where you kind of give, 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 and then you're just spent. And it actually took me 10 years and to actually get back on my feet, so to speak, of really connecting back to myself. I mean, I went through the motions, so it's not like I hadn't done anything in those 10 years. It was just I just felt that I was hiding. Like I had this mask, this persona that you're out in the world, you do the everything by sort of automatically this mute thing of what's expected. But underneath I was hurting. I was pain. Um, and there wasn't anyone that really understood. And I'm sure most mothers who have experienced loss and as yourself, getting everyone to say, move on, aren't you over it yet? Like you're still grieving. Oh, you have another child. Mm -hmm. Made it even harder. And it just seems like you. I just withdrew even more so. Mm -hmm. And that aspect of all of a sudden trying to figure out like, who am I? Mm -hmm. You know, I do. these core beliefs that we used to have. And then you feel like something's wrong with me because... I'm still grieving. That is a big one. I want to circle back to that. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's the thing. We get bombarded and it's almost like, and that's why I said what's linear because it's almost like everyone else is giving you a timeline. Well, you have six months. Okay. Maybe your child passed away. You might have a year, maybe two years, but still like, why are you still sad? Why are you still like this? And that's when I kind of was thinking like, it was my child. Yes, I have another son, but my other younger son doesn't replace my older son, right? There isn't a replacement. Yeah. And and I think people sometimes, because they're not living with it. And, and I understand there's a lot of misunderstanding about grief, about loss, about traumatic experiences. Mm. And yet because of that, and I think Society is also led to believe about these stages, right? Like we go into these five stages or seven stages, and it's like, now let's tick a box off. Mm. Oh, I'm in the other one, so I'm still in anger. Well, let me. And so when you're looking at it, that is sort of linear. I always go, and I dislike the word acceptance when it's used with grief. Because mm. I kind of go, as a mom whose son has died, I know who died, 
And I accepted that he died. So it's not that the acceptance is there, not there, because uh, I live with it every single day. And mm -hmm. other mothers who have, you know, their children have passed away. And so I'm thinking like when we look at acceptance, there has to be a different meaning attached to it. And so what I've used acceptance as is I've accepted the fact that I am a grieving mother. And nice. I'm going to be a grieving mother as long as I live. Yeah, I love what you're saying. Probably we're going to weave in and out with respect to what you're doing today. So I want to say one thing. When you said you felt something was wrong with you because you were still grieving. So I battled with this for probably 15 or so years. Um, it was interesting because I literally did. I didn't know why I felt that pressure because we're not competing with anybody. But when I would see, particularly in the first few years of my bereavement, when I would see uh, people who had lost, you know, all their kids on Oprah or, you know, horrendous, you know, circumstances like their child murdered or something, and they would present themselves as forgiving and okay. And I would go, what the heck's wrong with me? And I like, there's no way I'm okay. There's, there's no way. Maybe I loved my kid too much. Not saying another mother didn't love their child enough, but just like there was something wrong with me. It took me years to really understand. It was all basically, and I'm not going to say everyone puts on a front, but my evidence is if any of us were to watch any bereaved parent, even 30 years and dads too, be interviewed or they, you know, you just there, I've seen many, many, many videos of, you know, things on YouTube and related to, well, not many, but related to bereavement. But anyway, the point I'm making is whenever you see for real, a parent, mom or dad talking decades after their child has died, they still tear up that you can still see the pain you can still see sometimes the anguish. And so it, I, in, the, in terms of talking about acceptance, when I was like you, I was like, okay, I'm just going to accept that I'm in this pain and I'm going to see where it takes me instead of beating myself up for so many years thinking I needed to be different and better and over it. And you're right, largely it's because of society, don't you think? It's because you said, and I don't want to knock any foundation or any work out there that talks about set stages and maybe cycles, but when you apply it to um, the death of a child, I think you've got to toss all those things out the window and go it on your own and find your own way. What do you think about that, Maria? Totally agree uh, on that. Um, uh, and that I think is the aspect. I mean, I ended up reading so many different books on grief, you know, and I think wanting to find the answer, the answer to fix me, the answer yeah. solution. Me too. Oh God, I'm so glad that you're saying that. Me too. And there wasn't one. Yeah. And I think that was it. It was like I was devouring all these books going, there's got to be a solution. Like, what, what's wrong with me? Why am I still on here? And of course, it didn't help that some of the people that I hung out with, so-called friends, mm -hmm. kept telling me that there had to be something wrong with me. Like, they didn't like who I was becoming. They liked me better from before. And it was kind of like, yeah, but before my son was alive, 
Now he's not. Yeah. That too doesn't equate. Yeah, that you bring up a really good point. Uh, did you lose friends after uh, your son passed? Yes, I did. Um, some kind of disappeared because I guess they kind of figured that I wasn't <laughs> uh, the joyous, happy person anymore. Uh, other ones that had stayed a little bit longer after a while, it was kind of like, yeah, you're still in grief. I'm sorry. Uh, the only person that uh, I think that we kind of still kept in touch with, and she was actually quite honest at the very beginning. And so I had deep respect for her because she told me, she goes, Maria, I don't do sad. And she goes, because I have enough problems of my own. Yeah. I can't deal with somebody else's sadness. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was actually freeing because it was sort of like, I got you. You're telling me right off. So I know that on days that I'm sad, not to call you. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, on days that I'm okay, we can hang out. Yep. So yep. for her, I had way more respect for other people who wanted to be there and say that they were offering support. But then afterwards, you could kind of like, as soon as you, like, as soon as I mentioned my son, or I was saying something, you could see the eyes glazing over, almost like, oh my God, there she goes again. Oh, in my audience listening, um, I'm my hope is that this reaches uh, bereaved parents, moms, dads, uh, who have these similar experiences. I want you to know you're not alone. Everything you're saying, Maria, I went through, I felt. And the thing that I want to stress is that you know, just because we're bereaved, we're not like, um, maybe in the beginning, we're kind of lost souls, but certainly the longer we're in this, and certainly for those of us that choose to have a different experience in our grief, in other words, try and move, you and I have talked about moving beyond, your work is centered in moving beyond, um, you know, we can still, we can still have a good time. Now, it will take everybody a little bit different time to learn how to laugh again and really enjoy a belly laugh. And for me, it was about five years. And I remember my first belly laugh. And I remember I still felt guilty. Uh, you know, but the thing is, I remained an optimist. I actually discovered Maria, I was an optimist after my daughter died. Because I didn't really think about it before. How do you view the world? I don't know. I just do it. I function. But you know, from a you know, a solution oriented place. But I really didn't have to test those skills on the level I had to for my own survival until she passed. Did that happen to you? Like what I want to move into my next question. And so for me, the reason I'm sharing that is because I was an optimist and because I was sort of solution driven without really having those words back then, because quite frankly, I didn't want to hear any optimistic words or think about in my world healing and stuff like that but nevertheless that was what was driving me is working towards a solution working towards being an optimist working towards wanting to live which is the complete opposite of surviving and dying uh, inside actually being and feeling dead inside so it takes years uh, for us to 
evolve on this journey. You call it a roller coaster uh, ride of, of grief, roller coaster grief. So you're saying it took you about 10 years before you even could have a, a sense of self. My question is, what do you think was your driving force to want to not stay where you could have and like many people do? Well, there were different time periods. Uh, one, I think even when my son had cancer, I already had the optimism, uh, the reframing, the gratitude, uh, things like that. And even so we already had started that from beforehand. And I think that is my go-to anyways. Okay. Um, and so for me, it was having faith. I mean, I had faith from beforehand and then it seemed to have deepened. Um, and that is one thing that I never really questioned because I always thought it was my faith that kind of kept me put together. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, I think for me, it was more the mask because other people uh, of what they were saying and I thought something was wrong with me. Um, you know, uh, one of the aspects that I've shared even with other people that I've spoken to is after my son died, you know, your, your thoughts are kind of all jumbled up. So one of my thoughts was, I must not have been a good mother. Oh, yeah, I had that one. That kept playing in my mind. And one of the aspects was, I was not a good mother was because I had never taken my sons to Disneyland. When I say it out loud, it sounds like, what the heck? What what the heck are you taking? But all of a sudden, that thought had been in my mind for so long that, you know, I must not have been a good mother because when my boys were small, I had never taken them to Disneyland. And it just kept playing on. And then it's like, oh, I must not have been a good mother because did we have a really good doctor? My son had cancer. Why didn't I find the cure? Right? I just want to say I'm really glad you're sharing that because my guess is that every bereaved mom, and I will add dad, thinks like that. Uh, Do you think so? Would you would you think so? Yeah, the brief moms that I have talked to, yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's the society thing that when things go right, I don't think mothers get the credit for it, but no matter what, anything goes wrong, it's always the mom's fault. It's like, you know, why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why, you know, right? It's, and sometimes I'm thinking we have to stop with these why questions, especially when there is no answer to anything. I love that. So you're saying stop with the why questions. I agree with you. It took me years to do that, though. It took me till 2018, 2019, 2020. Oh, my. That's a big one. That is a big one. And one of the other aspects, because I did have my younger son, um, I guess after a couple of years in, one of the aspects I thought is, oh, I got to start getting my act together. Uh, because then what am I showing my younger son that he doesn't matter? Like his brother was more important than he was. Um, so all of these things were kind of in. And it's really difficult because you're dealing with my own emotions yeah. that are all jattered all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I really could not deal with my spouse's emotions. I couldn't deal with my other son's emotions. And even though I wanted to help, well, help my younger son. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of figured to myself, so you're on your own too. I'm on my own, you're on your own. 
And and it's one of these things where all of a sudden they're all looking to me as a lifeline. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess because the young older son had had, you know, Stefan had had cancer for so long, I handled everything. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it was kind of like, okay, you're the fixer. You're the, and it's like, I had no energy. I was just spent. I was done. It was like I was an empty shell walking. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't give anything that I didn't have. Yes. So, right? Yes. And, yes. and I want to just jump in here. So again, for the audience, so anybody watching this that has lost a child, is facing a situation like Maria was for years, your son had cancer, and you were on this journey for years, which had to be incredibly at its at its moments traumatic, but you would have to speak to that. My daughter died by suicide, so it was super sudden. And what's interesting though, Maria, and you and I have talked about this, is it doesn't really matter how your child goes. You're left with pretty much the same grief baggage and roller coaster. And you and I have experienced many of the similar things. Every bereaved parent I've ever met, which has been quite a few over the years, we've all said, yep, Yep. I, yeah, I felt that. Yeah, I felt that. Yeah, I felt that. And we didn't even get into, well, how did your kid die? You know, no, that wasn't important. But you speak about um, something that is um, really important. And I'm going to throw out there uh, this and then Marie, I want to know if, how you feel about it. So for anybody that may be struggling with a child loss, with some other trauma, adversity, when you feel like you can't control it and there are no answers, stop asking why. And I was just wondering, Maria, is it as simple? Let me rephrase that. Was it as simple for you just to stop? Like literally condition your your mind, your brain to just, I'm not going to ask that anymore. Or were you like me and struggled with giving up asking for giving up searching for certain answers that certainly in my case I'm never going to get you oh so true um and that is a good question and a good point of how and I don't think it happened overnight like it's not something that you know all of a sudden oh yes this is what I'm going to do I guess it was a gradual okay there were certain aspects that I think even from the beginning I didn't really use the why question in the sense of like my son was 16 when he was diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, So my spouse, you know, his thing was, why me? Why me? And I kind of looked at him going, you don't have cancer. Our son does. So I didn't really look at it like, why did my son get cancer? And, you know, out of everybody else, right? Um, It's one of those things like, it's like, why not us? Like what, what makes us special that we're not ever going to get? touched by anything. So that I think was for me a little bit easier to say the why questions don't, don't happen. But one of the other things I think that lifted me up was about when I chose to say, you know what, I don't care what anybody else is saying about grief. Yeah. It's just part of me. So I think that was where, for me, this burden lifted is because everybody else around me, and that's including like my brothers and and things were kind of constantly like, oh, you know, get over it. You're going to, you know, almost with that, all of a sudden there was a, a magic year that was going to appear and that I would not be grieving. <laughs> 
Yeah. All right. And again, just let me throw in here really quick. And Maria, you're just essentially saying this. Our family, our friends, and maybe co-workers, anybody that we've had a relationship with, our spouses for sure, they want us to be who we were, even when they're messed up. And this is specific to losing a child. I could it probably it probably happens in anything that changes a person. But when you lose a child, like you know, you can. I lost my identity completely. So if I didn't know who I was, and Maria, you said you know it took you years to find out who you were. Um, it doesn't matter that we have a family intact, even surviving children whom we love dearly dearly, maybe even more than we ever, you know, dreamed we could today. Because of understanding, they could be gone. Uh, But when you've lost yourself, and everybody wants you to be who you were, or get over it or whatever, be somebody that they can connect with. This is, I think, what is responsible in large part, not not entirely, but in large part to the silence, the silent culture we have around, for sure, child loss, to some extent, suicide, and, and for sure, uh, the bereavement part of it, because nobody wants anything bad happening to them. And we represent what they don't want, the worst of what they don't want. Yeah. Thank you so much for touching upon that, because that, I think, is another aspect that I found earlier on, too, of sometimes why some of the friendships don't last. Yeah. is because all of a sudden, people are kind of like, oh, if you lost your child, is that contagious? Yes. Yes. I actually had people leave our, leave my, our life. Yeah. It's almost like, oh, if it happened to you, like they can't yeah, around you because then it could happen to them. Yeah. And it's the absolute worst feeling when you feel people are afraid of you. Would you not agree? Yes. Yeah. And, and that is not spoken uh, about. And no, um, another young mom had shared and she was like, oh, we were someplace and this other couple who had lost their child were saying, you're going to lose friends, you're this and that. And they're going, oh, don't talk like that. And it doesn't happen like right away. Sometimes you're going to get some friends that leave right away. And I go, maybe they weren't your friends to begin with. Exactly. The other ones, it it happens over a period of time. And some people, I mean, there are um, another woman that I know whose son died by suicide and her friends are very supportive so sometimes it's the caliber of friends maybe right it depends on who that person who is your friend um what their core values are and how supportive they are so it's not going to be happening to everyone no yeah Yeah, i don't want to scare people off no no Yeah, and it really also depends, I think, largely on if you have a community already in place. Uh, When you lose a child, I didn't, and I wasn't the kind of person anyway that had loads and loads and dozens and dozens of friends and super sociable and all that kind of stuff. I've always been sort of just a, a really tight, tight circle. And I do still have some people from long, long ago in my life. But 
regardless, not going down the rabbit hole on this issue, it happens. That's all I want to say. It happens. Expect it to happen when you have even some really positive changes in your life. I know that from working with individuals over the years, uh, you know, and people can't keep up with that either. But, you know, we do connect with each other when we have something in common. And so we won't scare people about that, but it does happen. And I also want to honor that for people that are going through that for whatever reason, whether it's loss or some other kind of adversity. And you know what? You can make new friends. And I have made some wonderful new friends and, Grief and bereavement aren't the foundation of that friendship anyway. But as we get stronger ourselves and we're not so consumed by whatever it is that is causing us the pain and suffering, we can also be more open to having experiences that aren't totally defined by that suffering and pain or experience. I just want to throw that in. And I know for me, my loss in the early years unless I had to go and do something like go to work or something that really it really did consume me and it took me a while to open my heart and allow myself to have experiences that weren't tied to that do you understand what I mean and and so it it's like if you want to have fun like people don't necessarily give themselves permission to be cheerful to be happy to be positive to go and have fun Um, you know, to find new hobbies, to find things that might bring them joy, to live, to actually live. And it it is a journey in itself, in my uh, view and experience, to want to choose to live because sometimes the pain and suffering can just seem like more of a good old friend you can rely on. And it's there when you want the company all the time. So it's a slippery road, you know, And so I am, uh, you know, quite curious, what was the driving force for you, Maria, to not stay in that depth of despair, whatever your depth of despair was when your son passed? Yeah, I'm thinking, okay, that's a great question. Um, I'm super curious about this. I'm super curious about what drives people. I'm curious about self-development anyways. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was taking different courses and... And sometimes it was about, um, for me, it was about giving back. Um, Even before my son died, one of the things that we had done was we had, we're doing a a function or a fundraiser for uh, leukemia. And that was really only to keep him busy. Okay. Yeah. So we wanted to give him something to, to kind of keep him occupied. And so we continued on with that. So I think it was one about giving back. Um, And so originally it was about giving back to leukemia patients, like the Leukemia Society. How can you help blood cancers? And then over the years, it kind of shifted to hospice care uh, Mm because my son was also in palliative for uh, a little bit. And so it was sort of like, oh, you know, there's the dignity of giving someone respect and dignity as they're going through an illness. And then, of course, COVID hit. And I mean, I think by this time, it was sort of like when I really grasp, and this is where I think the joy came from. And I don't really want to say joy because my son passed away, but just joy within me. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Was when it all of a sudden that I stepped in that this is where the arena I'm supposed to be. 
Yeah. But for some odd reason, uh, I was getting messages that the arena of grief was where I supposed to be. And I got like, yeah, I don't think so. Who's going to listen to me? Um, but it was when I stepped into that and I was in a coaching call with a different group. And when I said that, even the other woman on the other side, because I was in a, a business course because I was going, I was into the self-care arena and the wellness. Yes. And as soon as I said it was about grief, all of a sudden she goes that something lit up inside me. She could see the light shine. And I think I've always been a helper anyways. Like I've okay. wanted to empower other women. And this just kind of fit in. Yes. Of, this is the topic. Of yeah. Because I'm kind of like, I don't want to shut up anymore. Oh, we're so similar. We're just so similar. Ditto. <laughs> uh, another yeah. lady that I was talking to, um, her tribe is called the Unapologetic Woman. Okay. And so she's, it's a, it's not, it has nothing to do with grief. It's about women stepping into their own powers and doing things their own way. And I really liked that word. And I'm like, is it okay if I use the unapologetic? I love it. She's like, go right ahead. And I'm like, yeah, I'm an unapologetic griever. Like, yes. I'm going to apologize for grieving, for grieving my son. And if you don't like it, yes, you'll find someone else to hate. Yeah, I to totally, totally love that. I just want to, um, um, I didn't want to uh, bypass uh, the idea of the gratitude and faith as being a foundation for you as well. And all of these things, audience, so it's whatever has, you know, really rooted us in something that can often be a kickstart when you find yourself in just the most unimaginable situation suddenly or long-term like you, Maria, know the end is, is coming. I mean, I could say to you, well, I just can't imagine knowing the end is coming. Well, yeah, actually, I could imagine that. I didn't get that. Uh, but that in, in and of itself is just something that, you know, is, it's that old question. And I'm not asking it. I'm just saying, I'm just making reference. Which would be worse, losing someone suddenly or knowing they're going Ugh, neither is good. Neither is good. That's all I'm going to say. Um, so I was just going to come up to unapologetic grief. You've all of that foundation of you allowed you to eventually in whatever your own time frame say, I'm claiming this and I am not going to apologize for who I am and my grief. And I want to, I want to, you maybe, maybe didn't say I want to yell it from the rooftops, but I want a voice now. And you and I arrived at the exact same place, just different ways, my journey almost exactly. So I would like to ask you, uh, you're passionate about changing how grief is viewed and um, me too. And I love this part and creating meaningful ways to remember our loved ones. I love that. I love that. And so I was going to ask you, I think it's a no-brainer for those of us that are in grief as bereaved parents or any other kind of struggle, we need to, we need to change the discourse on death, loss, and, and grieving. You know, we need to not be afraid to talk about it. And your voice, Maria, and my voice and others who are doing this, uh, it is um, so needed. I'm going to say publicly doing this podcast, folks, folks. 
there's no directory category for grief or bereavement in any of the big streaming services. I would dearly, anybody watching this working for a big podcasting streaming service like, you know, Apple, Google, Spotify, any of them, please, we really, really need a category where we can park our work. Uh, So that's one way of changing cultural discourse is when people are looking for help. AI can find your search because other people are looking for, you know, you know, language in YouTube and so on, which would be grief, bereavement, suicide, you know, child loss, all of these hard words that feels like they kind of get hidden away. And anyway, it's, it's, we need to change it, but creating meaningful ways to remember loved ones. Can you tell us more about how we can do that, Maria? Well, it's really up to the individual. And that's why I go, it's about creating a a memorable way of honoring your your child or anyone that you are grieving because mm-hmm. the meaning is going to only be to yourself right of what you find is special in how you remember them i mean for my son i actually have you know um i put it on after he died he had a bracelet mm-hmm. and so i sized it to my wrist and it never comes off Mm, I love that. And it never comes off. Mm. And there are times where, you know, I light candles for my son um, on different days. Or now it's like right now, like, I mean, he loved orchids. So I have orchids usually around. Mm-hmm. So, it's That brings meaning to me. Mm-hmm. One of the other ones, um, and I never really thought of it beforehand, is about... Uh, we buried my son because he had a stuffed turtle. I mean, he was 27 when he passed away. But mm-hmm. him and his girlfriend at the time um, had this private joke. And so I never even thought of it. And then turtles seemed to kind of come up. And I researched it or Googled it or whatever. Um, and turtle is actually seen as a spirit animal mm-hmm. for healing. And I'm thinking, well, isn't that funny? My dad used to call me a turtle all the time as a child. Yeah. Because he thought I was always too slow to grasp things or just in movement. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was like, oh, wow, isn't this great? Because the turtle actually moves at its own pace, does its own thing, mm-hmm. and can also, and it has longevity, but it goes back into the water and on, and on the, the ground, like on earth. So it kind of moves in both. But one of the other aspect is it's about the shell, like it comes out when it needs to come out. But when it needs to have that time to retreat, it goes into its shell. And that's where I got the self-care and self-love is that realistically, a turtle is showing itself when it needs to care for itself, when it needs to love itself. And there's something in the ancients also, because I mean, I hadn't really ever thought of, because I always thought... Oh, if you're going to have a spirit animal, you want like an eagle, you want, right? You're never thinking of uh, a little turtle or I guess sea turtles are, are big. And that's where the, the part of the self-care and self-love came in. I mean, I already had been on that journey of self-care. Uh, yes. Health was starting to be affected by the grief. And that is something that the focus is so much sometimes on the emotional, the emotional and the mental. Whereas 
our bodies are feeling everything that we are feeling. And what I found was because I was being closed in and not voicing my emotions, okay, my body was showing it in different ways. I mean, one of the aspects after my son passed away was I couldn't receive hugs. Like no one could touch me because my body all of a sudden, as soon as someone even tapped me on the shoulder, sent excruciating pain throughout my body. Wow. I'm not so I'm not surprised at all. Uh, right? Yeah, so it's no. like my body was so rigid and keeping things in. Um that and so so was mine. So I just want to let you know you're not alone in that, Maria. Um stiff as a board and I still get that way. Like don't ask me to dance. You know, it's pretty hard for me to move. Mm. Yeah. Because we can hold pain, audience. We can hold pain and we we do hold pain uh, in different parts of our body. And when you've lost a child, you're going to hold it in different areas. I'm just saying, if you're sore and you've gone through loss, uh, it, it could be the grief. Yeah. And no yeah. one ever, ever says that to No, no. Uh, and that's why I'm saying it. And also stress. Um they may look at it and diagnose and it happened to me with all this weird stuff and weird feelings going on as just stress but it really wasn't just stress it was actually carrying trauma and shock and deep deep suffering uh, like pain in different parts of my body and I don't know if doctors at the time I'm not knocking doctors no one think I'm knocking doctors they're just not educated enough and I actually will gratefully say here and respectfully say here I had a number of doctors uh, that I saw at clinics and my private doctor and stuff like that and they really wanted to know they're still probably today super curious about my uh, bereavement experience Really interesting. So it's not that I don't think medical professionals don't want to learn. It's we have to be astute enough ourselves to understand what's happening in our bodies and what we think may be happening and then explain it to them so that they can maybe explore it further with us and even professionally. But at the same time, I just want to say for you, Maria, and the audience, I was terrified to share anything with doctors on a on a really like on that level I would give them surface stuff but I didn't want to be probed too deeply because I didn't understand it I didn't understand it so it just it, it was easier if, if I could avoid going to doctors I would but my health deteriorated so much like you're saying yours did I had to go to doctors so tell me about your health deteriorating I want we, we are moving into self-love and self-care so you became astute enough to understand and this is how many years into your bereavement that your body was feeling the effects of not expressing emotionally. I did just, I did just want to say one thing though, when we were talking about the turtle, so, and I was asking, and when we, we sort of skimmed a little bit about what people can do to honor their loved ones. So A, what do you, what does the turtle mean for you today? And I also want to just circle back to that a little bit before we jump into self-care. Do you... Um, place an importance on being able to honor our lost loved ones uh, in a, in meaningful ways as something quite central to your own personal beliefs and, and probably maybe your work as well, because we don't feel we can do that. I feel that sometimes people feel like they have to do things sort of on the side, whereas 
um, you know, and it, and that's why it's going to be very personal to each person. Maybe you're going to make something that was their favorite dish, yeah. or maybe it's a place that they used to like to to visit. So that is really personal that you think you're going to honor. I mean, for me at the beginning, it was we were honoring him by doing the fundraisers, right? And I mean, and that was sort of public. And at the beginning, people, you know, would come and things like that. But we also noticed as the years went by, less and less people were coming to the fundraiser. And we knew because one, he had died, right? It was kind of like in mm-hmm. there, it's becoming like distance. Um, the other aspect was we never really took photos of my son when he was really ill. Yeah. Right? We always had him when he was as healthy. And I understand he didn't want us to have any photos of him um, because basically even when he was ill all those years, he never looked ill. And all of a sudden we had to watch him slowly become skeletal. Yeah. Right? And as his mom, even though I saw that, it didn't register. Other people who saw him, I think, got the shock because all of a sudden it was like, and they'd look at me like, how can you not see it? And that is one of the things that I always um, go, it was a blessing and thank you, Lord. As his mom, I just saw my son. Yes, I saw the signs, but to me it was my son and it was from love. And I'm sure if we had pictures of him, it would be a shock. We never took pictures of him. So, but I do have pictures, you know, of him that I have on my mantle with a fireplace. And I wouldn't have been able to post pictures of him before. It took me a while to even see pictures of him when he was younger without, you know, crying and having an episode of like really deep, deep pain. I still don't look at childhood pictures, though. So that's quite understandable. Again, for anybody out there going through that and going, I can't look at pictures. And and then there are other people that just can't get enough of them. Now, the sad thing is they always stop at one photo, the last photo. They never change. And um, that is something that can be difficult to live with. Honestly, it can be. You know what? I did meet people that lost a child and they would never say their child's name again or there were family members where someone lost a child and wouldn't let that parent say their child's name again I've actually met people where that's happened and so society I'm just saying it it anything we do just to close this this off about having meaningful um, memories meaningful things that we do to honor our loved one uh, because we have to do it seemingly in secret and in private, it makes it that much more important. And uh, if talking, you don't necessarily have to have rituals, traditions. I've tried a bunch of different things, but the most important thing I'll throw into the ring, having had 18 years experience in July, which is not as much as some people, but longer than others, is we just talk about my girl and our girl and um not, and 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 not like she's still here although i kind of think they are still around us of course i've had i don't think i know for my experience but it's that not shunting them away in a compartment in our mind or a closet in our home where they didn't exist and that again contributes to such a difficulty for us talking about 
grief, changing the discourse on grief. That's all I want to say about that. And I'll just add another aspect because I just remembered. I still have a lot of my son's clothes. Some we gave away to some family and some friends and uh, I still have some and I wear his shirts. And and I want to, to point out to, to your audience especially because sometimes people will kind of like, oh, you're wearing your your son's clothes. Like to me, I'll be quite open on it. It's like, I still want to wear it. I'm not giving them away. My mom gave me a vest of my dad's. Yeah. And so I wear my dad's vest. I was just going to say, I don't think there's one person that would ever say anything negative about it. In fact, I think that's the luckiest thing in the world that you have. I don't have that. And when my daughter was really tiny, I couldn't have fit into any of her clothes. But the one thing that does come to me right now to share is sometimes people give things away too fast. And sometimes we hang on to things that are just painful for us to hang on to. So what I would say about that is if it doesn't cause you pain to hang on to it, keep it, you know, keep it. And I think you're the luckiest mom in the world for being able to wear your son's clothes. I really do. Yeah, well, that's what I want to say about I think that. Was 511 and <laughs> Oh, wow. How cool is that? Oh, well, it's kind of like I don't really care if they're big or or anything and one memento I have that um is very special to me is I have uh probably the one and only letter my daughter ever wrote me and it was um when she moved to Toronto and I have that and then she made me some music actually um All right, this is before, you know, downloading was really, really cool. But anyway, she made me uh, a a little album of music that she picked out herself. And they, they were on CDs that, you know, one day she just gave me these five CDs. And I'm like, oh, gee, thanks, hon. Uh, But they have become something that is... um, you know, like they're in a safe and I have them on my computer and stuff like that. So that's, I would say what I have and, and her and some ID, I kept some ID. And so we all keep different things, but I don't obsess over it because it was too painful. I'm not saying anybody's obsessing, not not here, I'm not. But I've also known about people, I don't know anyone personally, who have created shrines of rooms and stuff like that. It's a painful place for them, but they have an attachment to them that's holding them in a place that I personally would consider unhealthy after X number of years. So it can work both ways. It's like anything, an addiction or anything. If it's impacting your life, your current loved ones, and other people are missing out on you and you're missing out on life, that is an opportunity when we get to choose whether we want to start changing what's happening for us, which all has to start from within. Would you agree, Maria? To a certain point, um, sometimes I think we hold on to something more because we sometimes a parent, mother, parent, um, may not feel that they've been acknowledged in their grief, that that they've had to hide it. Good point. Right? And, And that would be my concern. And that's why sometimes I think even in my go 10 years, um, it's because the people that are around you, you can't openly express 
your sadness or whatever, or your anger or your emotion. Anything. Yeah. That, what a good point you're making. Yeah. Other aspects. And I'll go because I happen to be a Christian. So I can use my religion. Abs- absolutely. Absolutely. So sometimes I'll go and Christians are the worst. Okay. Why? Why? They mean well, but most of the time they'll always go, it's in God's hands. It's in God had a plan. Um, okay. Oh, you need to have faith. You need to have this. Uh, okay. So like, well, you know what? A, you don't know how much faith that mother, that dad has. And if something happens, I always go, look, be angry at God if that's what you want to be. God right. can take it. And it doesn't matter what God you pray to or who you believe in. Yeah. Go ahead and be angry. And a lot of times, if you're in a faith-based community, showing that you're angry at times feels, you know, they people will look at you like, oh, they certainly don't believe in God. That's one of the reasons why their child died. Oh. Have this other um, underneath things that people will, it's sort of like a judgment, like, whoa, what have you done that God got angry at you? Well, oh. stop the BS because good things happen to, to everybody. Bad things happen to good people too. Okay, really good point. Really good point. So I'll clarify what I'm just, what my view has always been concern for people suffering needlessly. So I just want to say about what I'm saying about bereaved, anybody bereaved or anybody in a bad situation, hanging on for it for a really long time, if it's not serving any you, you well anymore, my whole perspective comes from wanting and desiring people to want more. Um, and I think I'm just in that space because it was horrible suffering. It was horrible being in, in like the worst pain, which you can only know if you're in it. And so that's where I'm coming from. I'll clarify. So if someone has a shrine and someone needs that shrine till the day they die and be miserable, like sad, hurt, uh, behind all misery is just pain, but be in that pain. I would want more than anything that one day you would not want to have to experience that pain, but I respect if that's your journey. That's the nicest way of me saying that because I couldn't handle, the reason I'm saying that's Maria, because I couldn't handle that pain, but my only other choice was dying. And I think that pain sometimes comes from the same thing, but the misunderstanding about grief where we're, told to move on get over it and it feels like an either or aspect it's either you choose grief or you choose to move on and you forget about that's where the self-love and self-care kind of comes in too because what i ended up believing afterwards is that my grief and my love they're together they coexist it's not or aspect and sometimes an Unless you are around other people that can say, hey, it's okay to grieve. It's okay that you're feeling like this way. And you can still move forward in life and honor. Yeah, you are bringing up, we're going to talk about grief and love together next right now, actually. But you're prefacing that you are bringing up something so key. And it took me years to understand 
if we were supported by everybody, everybody, but in our communities, in our churches, in our workplaces, medically, I'm not saying any of these people or any of these institutions don't care, but you have to be all in and invested in someone else's troubles to make changes, someone else's pain to make changes. And the key thing that you said for me was not feeling supported, right? Um, that we can't talk. It's not about just not talking. It's about hiding a huge part of our life and our child's life who lived. Like it's like wiping them, erasing them and their existence off the planet. And so in my view, I realized that was one of the biggest things preventing me from feeling like I could even have a chance at a better life, you know, and we can call it moving forward. We can call it healing. We can call it whatever we want to call it, but not staying in that same place of suffering. And I'm really going to think about what you said, and I appreciate and respect you bringing that, that up, that not feeling heard is a big part of that. And um, what do you do with your pain? If no one wants to hear it, what do you do with it? Well, folks, you stuff it down inside of you. Yeah. Now, talking about self-care, let's talk about how you put grief and love together, Maria. One, uh, I mean, and I started with the self-care aspect. That's why I okay running a company that is wellness because it was more about, okay, so healing my body. <laughs> and I found that once I started healing my body, mm -hmm. then I could really look at my emotions. Because especially when you're in the early throes of grief where everything just bombards you. Yes. You don't know what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And that, and that sort of makes that indecision or that frozen limbo. Because all of a sudden we're... And one of the things even with self-care is don't ever make any life-changing decisions right at that moment when you can't really look at things. Um, and self-love sort of evolved from that because as a grieving mom, you know, I really questioned my worth, my self-esteem, my self-identity. Now, that also comes from childhood because one of the things about grief is that all the things that came up um, as my growing up years also resurfaced, you know, things that I thought I had dealt with from growing up. Because I mean, in my family, um, I always go, they actually told you you were stupid, thinking that that would make you smarter. Okay. It, it was a culture I, I grew up with. Yeah. And I mean, I grew up being hit and I thought that was normal. It was just the, the culture. But not only that, but so some of these, the self-esteem issues that I had in my growing up years had popped up. And I think I ended up realizing that, wow, like I, you know, I thought I had dealt with them, but it was still there. So it was almost like, do I really love myself? And I actually had talked to a woman like, what do you do to celebrate yourself? And I'm like, I don't do anything to celebrate me. Like, and I realized that, you know, as many years as I've been on earth, 
I've never really appreciated myself for me. I don't think you're alone, uh, Maria. It's one of the biggest things we have to learn, if we choose to, uh, to love ourselves and to respect ourselves and really just have self-worth. Why do you think it's so hard? I'm First of all, I want to say I'm really happy that you tapped into that. So essentially what you're saying is your bereavement brought out childhood issues that you thought you had dealt with, you hadn't dealt with. I personally didn't go through that, but I had been on a 23-year journey in metaphysics when my daughter died. So I'd already dealt with stuff, you know, and I'm, that it wasn't my issue. And I came from a lot of dysfunction. I would say that the bereavement was like, you said earlier, bad mother, uh, no worth. I must have deserved, you know, I'm just throwing this in. We deserve this. Like a lot of stuff happens uh, when you get hit by this. So for you becoming aware that these issues were happening for you and you need to take care of yourself, your body, listen to your body, take care of yourself, but then start dealing with the emotions, right? What was that journey like for you? And I will ask this as well. Is this something that you have to pay attention to on a regular daily basis to watch you don't slip? It is a constant because it's something that uh, is ingrained. A, I think women have it more so than men. It's uh, a self-esteem issue, either um, growing up in a dysfunctional family, watching what the media says about what a woman should be, what should they look like, and all of these kind of things. But it's also uh, about how we treat other people that may think different than what the norm is. Um, if you sort of think outside the box, or if you're unique, and sometimes that could be put down because you're not following the regular norm aspect, uh, you know, growing up. But through my grief journey, that was when I realized that and doing the work was about the self-development, was about, okay, so what do I really think of myself? And when am I going to let go? I mean, I wasn't really a people pleaser, so I didn't have that aspect. But it was also about, do I really love myself? Yes, I was okay spending time with my own self. Like, I didn't have that aspect, but I didn't see that as self-love. Because mm -hmm. self-love is one of those things that's kind of bandied around, like, you know, a buzzword or whatever. Yes, it is. In actual fact, when you think about it, is about how do I show me love? Like, do I show myself kindness that I show another person? Do I show myself compassion? Like I can be compassionate towards someone else, but am I compassionate towards myself? Yeah. And you know, one of the aspects that I always dealt with is that I was striving for perfection. I mean, as a teenager, as a young woman in my 20s and my 30s, it was even in my 40s, striving for perfection which section yeah. doesn't even exist. I know. And that's where I, I, I did sort of the, the five-step a path to self-love is because A, it's about releasing what we think we're supposed to be. It's releasing all the baggage that we've had, recognizing that that doesn't really suit me. That isn't me. Like, how am I supposed to be my authentic self and live my truth? 
you're just speaking to me, sister, like a sister. I, all these things that um, I think perhaps we can either struggle with before bereavement or not think about. And when you're brought down to your knees or flat on the ground, you start thinking about a lot of these things when and if you reach that point that you deserve and maybe want more. There are a huge number of factors that make us want to have more in this life. But I do believe it starts with a recognition of self-worth acceptance and then the self-love through the compassion and empathy. But I just want to throw this in and then I'd like to ask you about your five pillars because the thing is that when you can accept, so my work is partly about accepting this is what happened. And if you're going to go down metaphysics and spirituality, okay, you chose this. And then that's really fun because then you can start getting into why soul contracts and stuff like that. But anyway, it, being able to accept this is what's happened. This is my experience. This is who I have become as a part of it. And then when I went through that, it almost felt like the ball was in my court about what I wanted to do with my story. I had made my daughter's story more important than my own. Her story, meaning her death, her experience, her life, everything. I was lost for so many years. So having the courage, the guts to claim yourself, especially when you're rock bottom and you don't think much of yourself, if anything at all, that takes something. Do you know what I mean? And your foundation, I'm going back to that, your foundation, but it, whatever that was in you going at whatever level, it could have been subconscious and then it hits the conscious level saying, no, wait a minute, I deserve more. I want more, right? And this is how I'm going to get it. We cannot change the circumstances that happened as much as we want to wave this magic wand and kind of go back to a period where they were alive. It's not going to happen, all right? I mean, I'd like to have a magic wand too. And so it was throughout my journey. So again, this wasn't something that happened overnight. It was a gradual journey. And then I think within the last year or so is when I'm thinking, wow, okay, what did I do? And what I found was it's a place of where I have inner peace. Yes, I accept that my son passed away. Um, yes, I accept that I'm a grieving mom. I cannot change what happened. However, I can honor my son's life and I can honor my life. Yes. And I can tap into um, my power. Yes. Yes. We're, we're speaking the exact same language. And yeah, and we probably arrived at it at relatively the same time. Having the power to do that, but have a voice, not be silenced because of what's happened to us, but have a powerful voice because of what's happened to us, despite what's happened to us and being okay with it. So Maria, what would you like to share with us about your five pillar system? Okay. So the five pillar system is for mothers to get to a place of where their peace is, where their inner peace and self-love is. Because what my inner peace looks like is going to be, of course, completely different. And as I said, it's about tapping into the power that's within, right? Because one of the things is that when we tap into our own power, then what life are we going to create? 
that's going to reflect who we are and how we honor ourselves and our child. And a lot of that is, I think, what we've discussed is about releasing the emotions that are in our bodies. Um, how do we forgive ourselves? Basically, it's dealing with all of that, but it's about having tools. I mean, over the years, I found different tools that have helped me. And that's one of the things is what the, do they say? Don't reinvent the wheel. So right. if someone's already gone through it, and these are the tools, that's part of what I would share. And again, we have different tools because each tool, one person, it may resonate with them and for another, it may not. But again, it's finding ways or creating ways to release this emotion that becomes stuck in our bodies. It's also recognizing our strengths too, because they're kind of like that yin and yang sort of thing, right? Like our strengths and weaknesses are kind of the same. And so it's working within that, but it's also about unleashing our authentic self with self-love because only when we love ourselves mm -hmm. is when we can really embody who we really are, right? Like we're not, we're going to do away with this mask sort of thing of hiding behind a facade. Yep. Yep. And so it's really showing that compassion and kindness to ourselves because realistically moving forward only happens when we do all of this. And it's not so much as this episode of, oh, we're going to be forgetting. No, I always go, it's about the, again, the yin and yang, like grief and love are yin and yang. I mean, we won't have love unless we really miss the person and are grieving their presence mm -hmm. and we're grieving their presence because of the love. So I don't want to have this union sort of separated. It's not where it's like grief is on one end, love is on the other. Which one are you going to choose? Mm -hmm. No, it's like that life of dance, right? It's like we're dancing in it together. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just the word I'm using. But again, it's a word that's going, each word is going to resonate with someone else. Someone may call it healing. I don't use the word healing. I prefer using the word of either coexisting or moving forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And so that's why I go, it's, because it's a path. It's a path to self-love because it's not something that all of a sudden, snap of your finger, I've gone through this. Oh, yes, I now love myself. It's a constant daily aspect of yeah. what we have to do. And it's it's the loss that, yes, that we're dealing with that causes all this pain. And yet there's other things that have happened throughout of our experience, as I said beforehand, that came up to my forefront. If those hadn't come up, would I have thought about loving myself? Maybe not. It would have been tied up only in the grief and the death of my son. But because everything else was popping up too, actually started me questioning about, oh, what else is there that's lying beneath the surface? Yeah, for sure. That is, I'm 100% sure that is a, a an experience for a lot of people. And um, just the bad stuff can really get us on our path to be who we're authentically meant to become. Would you agree with that, Maria? Oh, definitely. And yeah. I, I also think, and I, especially with your audience, because sometimes this has always been a question for people sometimes because we're laughing because we have joy 
-hmm. in the moment doesn't mean that our grief or our loved one is forgotten. Like my child is never forgotten, as is your daughter. They are, I always call them, they are unforgettable. Yes. And some of us do things like I've written three books um, and essentially they're for uh, my daughter mostly. And um, we do things, a lot of bereaved parents. Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say a lot of bereaved parents. Let me just say there are bereaved parents that create foundations, organizations. They are active in changing legislation, improving laws. Mothers Against Drunk Driving was an example of that. The Compassionate Friends Support Group is another example of something really global and has taken root over a number of years. Uh, but uh, it's also a-okay if you're like super behind the scenes and just remembering, uh, like you were saying earlier, Maria, keeping that, um, I don't like the word memory, but keeping that existence of, of your child alive and not being afraid to speak about them. It's like it's so freeing to be able to say our child's name. So one of the things you do offer is like a Q&A and you can have people submit questions to your website. How often do you do this, Maria? Um, I'm going to be doing the Q&As at least once a month. So audience, if you go to, uh, we'll have the link to your website, but it is mariabelenick.com. And you have resources, your blog, you've got these Q&As, which is pretty cool. Uh, so you register and then you have a, a Zoom meeting and you're offering workshops. I see that you also do coaching, one-on-one uh, -on -one and group coaching as well. And people can register for that on your website? Through my website. Okay. They can email me at hope at mariablanick.com. Uh, so I'll have all of that information uh, in the description. And I know we've covered so much here, Maria, just so, so much. And I just want to say, I really appreciate the work you're doing as well. I know there's people doing work in grief and bereavement, but it's not, you know, necessarily easy to find the support and resources. Uh, and I believe, and I've always believed uh, since 2005, that we still need a lot more. There can never be too many voices and too many people working in this field. And um, we need to be found. I totally agree with that, Bon. And I thank you so much for having me today's way. And, and it's true. I mean, we've had different experiences. Yeah. At, some are similar. And, and you're right. It doesn't matter how our child passed away. No. We're going to be a grieving mom. And I think that's what for your audience is basically saying, find the support that you need that resonates with you. And I'm sure your audience and clients just love you because you are. You're a very warm, compassionate mom um, that understands what someone is going through. And especially when it's death by suicide, because that again has a different element than the way my son died of cancer. Yes, but I did just want to reiterate, uh, Maria, uh, her experience audience is going through an 11 year journey with her son who was diagnosed with uh, cancer leukemia uh, at age 16. She is a wealth of information to help anybody else if you want some mentoring, handholding, some coaching, um, anything. You, you've you got lived experience with that and you've also got some years in between 
where stuff can gel and this is where our wisdom can come forth and we can put together things such as you've done in your five pillar system and you know and I have my own grief coaching practice and stuff like that it takes time for us to be able to go out there and offer it to the world because we have to show up folks and we still have to battle our own stuff. Well, maybe I shouldn't say battle, but you know, we we have our own stuff that we're we're going through. It it never kind of kind of ends. But it is the compassion and the empathy, and it's the understanding, it's the knowing, it's being through what what is the same for us all, is the the pain, the suffering. All you have to do is you know meet another bereaved parent. Yeah, I, I get it. So. Again, doesn't matter your experience, but on that note, if any of you are going through something like what Maria has gone through, please uh, go visit her site and your resources are like right there. And your blog is wonderful too, Maria. I just want to say that. It's wonderful. Wonderful. So um, I think that's probably all we have time for in this one. If maybe we'll do another episode sometime and, and talk again about some other stuff, because as you can see, we can get really, really deep in the roots with this stuff. Um, but for today, probably past the top of the hour, um, I'm going to close this one out. And um, thank you so much for sharing, Maria. Vaughn, I just love what you do. And I thank you so much for this opportunity to be here with you and talk about grief. Thanks, Maria.